I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. We're in the Gospel of Luke. We're in the 10th chapter. We have been reading this passage the last several weeks. We'll read it this morning and one more time next week. One of the ways we learn is to do it again and again and again. So here we are, Luke chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. Jesus told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you. For the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. There is an epidemic of SAMO going on in this country. Every morning, we get out of the SAMO bed we go to the same old closet. We choose the same old clothes. We sit at the same old breakfast table and eat the same old food cooked by the same old person. We walk then into the same old garage. We drive the same old car, the same old route to the same old job at the same old company with the same old people working for the same old pay. Getting off at the same old time only to drive back on the same old route to the same old house to those same old kids. We sit in the same old chair, watch the same old television with the same old news. Then we go to the same old table and we eat the same old dinner cooked by the same old person. We watch more of the same old TV, retire to the same old time at the, to the same old bed, kiss the same old person, good night. Go to sleep on the same old side, only to wake up again the next morning to do the same old thing all over again. So your son, or perhaps your daughter, asks, Dad, what is life really all about? Well, let me, son or daughter, explain it to you. Okay, Dad. Son, you go to college and you get a good education. Why, Dad? So when you graduate, you can get a good job. 
Why, Dad? So you can make enough money to live where you want to live, to drive what you want to drive, and to do what you want to do. Why, Dad? So when you have a family and you raise your children, they can go to college and get a good education so they can have a good job and they can live where they want to live and drive what they want to drive and do what they want to do. Why, Dad? So when you're old and you can retire, you can live out your last years in ease. Why, Dad? So you can leave something behind for your kids. Wow. That's it. For most people today, life has lost its luster. And when your life has lost its luster, you have Samo disease. Today, we sleep two and a half hours less per night than our grandparents did. Today, we work longer and harder weeks than our parents did. The average office worker has 36 hours of work piled up on their desk. And we waste three hours every week sorting through it to find what we need. We spend eight months of our life opening junk mail. Two years of our life playing phone tag. Five years of our life waiting for people who are late for meetings. And I don't know how many years of our life actually in meetings. Likely decades. The average American has a credit card debt of over $6,000. Much of it from buying things they don't really need, but bought searching for a little bit of happiness and some joy. We are chronically rushed, chronically late, chronically stressed, chronically tired. We have too much activity in our lives, too much change, too many choices, too much work, too much debt, and too much media exposure. We are stressed by information and accessibility overload. We're always connected, but never together. Sociologists will say it has never been this way before, ever. A friend of mine by the name of Job once said, I have no peace. I have no quiet. I have no rest. And trouble keeps coming. How would you like to change that in your life? How would you like to change that in the lives of others? How would you like to enjoy life a bit more? How would you like to have more meaning and purpose throughout your day? How would you like to have a real reason to get out of bed in the morning and get dressed? Jesus came to cure Samo disease. He came to bring new life. He came to bring a newly passion, life-changing purpose and meaning to our life, to offer a new kingdom for anyone who is tired and weary of the same old, same old life. He claimed his kingdom was coming down to this same old world through his personal presence, through his teaching, through his ministry, through his death, and through his resurrection.
Jesus said he could, in fact, in fact, he would change the entire way and reason people live. He said that this new way of living could begin right now, immediately, and it would come, it would come through a new people and a new community that would be purposed with changing and transforming lives and community. He said, those who were blessed to be a part of his kingdom and his family would be unleashed to go out into the world to bless others. Like his people Israel were designed to do, but kind of didn't do it. Kind of messed it up. The truth is, is that Jesus is the ultimate kingdom bringer. The truth is that he has a plan, but his plan and his strategy is to use people in his family, people in his community, people in the church. He calls them, in the text we just read, workers. And he says, our purpose is to change and transform lives and communities. Transformation is known as the harvest. And Jesus says, the time for the harvest is now. It's ready. The time for transformation is here. And so Jesus sends us, his workers, out into the field for the harvest to transform lives, to build his kingdom. Are you ready to go and change the world? You and I can make an eternal difference in someone's life. You and I can make an eternal impact on our community, on our neighborhood. We can change what goes on in our workplace. We can even be a part of the transformation of our own family. And that, that is worth getting out of bed in the morning. That's worth living through the day. That's a good tired when we put our head back on the pillow at night. In Luke chapter 10, beginning at the fifth verse all the way through the 12th verse, Jesus tells us, you and I, the workers, how we can do that, how we can change and transform lives. And the answer is really rather simple. We get to share his blessings in his world with our neighbors, in our sphere of influence and contacts. So how do we do that? Well, Jesus says that followers of him are to bring the blessing of peace into this world. Jesus says here in this text, when you enter a house, first say peace to this house. That is, bless the house. Bring peace wherever you go. Be known as a person of peace. Now, the Hebrew word is shalom. And shalom is a much broader word than what our word peace in the English is. If we were to define, to define peace in the English, we might say something like, well, it's the absence of war, it's the absence of conflict, it's the absence of anxiety, it is a sense of tranquility, it is, if you will, sort of an inner harmony that we might experience. But the Hebrew word shalom includes many more elements, elements of prosperity, a sense of wholeness and completeness, being both physically and spiritually and emotionally well, 
a sense of one's health, contentment, blessing, and safety. And ultimately, shalom is about a right relationship with God, with one another, and with our world. It is the relationship that we had, that human beings had, that Adam and Eve had before the fall into sin. And so Jesus comes along and says to his disciples, when you go into a house, when you meet somebody, engage them with the intent of blessing them. Don't be an antagonist. Don't be a competitor. Don't be an agitator. Don't be a complainer. Be a blesser. Be an intentional blesser. The idea of blessing has been deeply ingrained in the Hebrew tradition. And in fact, if you look the word up, it appears over 250 times in the scripture. So every week at the weekly Shabbat meal on a Friday night, the husband of the family would stand up and in front of his children, bless his wife so they could all hear and know. Husbands, take note. Tucking their children into bed, parents would regularly bless their children. They would literally give them a foretaste of their eternal inheritance, of their eternal blessing. Parents, are you blessing your children? Regularly. The common greeting on the streets between Jews is not, hey, how you doing? It's so good to see you. But shalom or shalom alchim, peace be with you. Do we bless one another in our homes? Do we bless one another in our faith community? Do we bless one another in our neighborhoods? Do we bless one another in our workplace? Are we blessing intentionally? Every Israelite knew that God had called them to be part of his chosen people. Every Israelite also knew that God had called them individually and together to be a blessing to the nations. God said in Genesis 12, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and, and you will be a blessing. They were blessed to be a blessing. The problem is they didn't do so good. Truth is they failed miserably. They blessed one another at least some of the time, didn't even do that very well. But they were called to it, as are we. We are blessed, so we can be a blessing. Jesus now takes their proclivity to bless each other, and he raises the bar for his disciples and for you and for me. And he says, go, don't only bless your family members and your friends and stuff. Bless your neighbors. Not only the ones who are like you, not only the ones who look like you and talk like you and think like you, but bless all of your neighbors. 
the ones who are different, even your enemies, and bless them with the ultimate blessing. Bless them with real peace. Offer them a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, it should be relatively easy to bring peace since we have been so blessed. It should be relatively natural for us to bless because we represent the prince of blessings, the prince of peace. It should be relatively simple for us to bless our neighbors because God has put them right next door to us so that we see them and interact with them on a regular basis. But today, people, homes, neighborhoods, entire cities are desperate for peace, are in urgent need of a blessing. So Jesus says, if someone who promotes peace is there, that is, if they're willing to receive you, your peace will rest on them. You show up, bring peace. If they want it, they can have it. If not, the peace will return to you. So let's call this for a moment peace by association. If you have real peace, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you just let that relationship be what that relationship is designed to be, it will rub off on others. All of our neighborly relationships, all of our interactions with other people, both followers of Jesus and those who are not followers of Jesus, should be focused on bringing peace. A right relationship, ultimately, a right relationship with God. And bringing that to one another and to our communities. Second, we not only bring peace, we bring hospitality. Jesus is sending us out to transform lives and entire neighborhoods into faith communities. Our nation tries to get people out of their houses, out of their homes, and, if you will, onto the streets one day a year, the first Thursday in August. It is called National Night Out. They try to get you out of your house to meet your neighbors, to have some conversation, to talk with them, to introduce yourselves, to get to know them one night a year. And the truth is, it has had minimal impact. Jesus says his followers are by nature to be doing that all the time. Jesus says this is who we are. We are a sent people. You come to Jesus and then you go into his world. He says in verse 7, when you enter, stay in that house. Eat and drink whatever they give you. Do not move from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. When you enter a town, don't look for some other place. Don't look for the nicest house. Don't look for the best cook. Look for someone who is open to the message, who wants to be blessed. Accept what they offer. It's God's way to provide for and to care for those who share the gospel. Building a missional relationship is more important, Jesus says to his disciples, than your own personal comfort. It's more important than eating the finest of food. 
It's more important than what you're going to get out of the relationship. That's, that's not that significant. In the Middle East, acquaintances don't generally do lunch or come together and eat casually. It's not because... It's not because people refuse to eat with people that they don't know real well. It's because when they sit down together, it is a serious commitment and they don't take it lightly because they understand they may sit down together as acquaintances, but once they have shared a meal together, once they now get up from the table, they're no longer acquaintances, they're family and they have responsibilities to one another. That's the power of table that Jesus here in Luke 10 is inviting us to step into. Eating with people breaks down walls. Eating with people means we're letting our inhibitions be set aside. Amazingly, when food is on the plate and when there is a cup in our hand, we experience belonging like no other way. That's why in our Western culture, we do coffee. That's why we have coffee after church. Adds to the communication, breaks down the barriers. You see, it's hard to adamantly disagree. It's hard to have a heated argument. It's hard to go at somebody who has just been a very gracious host to you. Being around table together promotes peace. In times of conflict, we know that parties are invited to a peace table. The table is a great way to deepen our relationship with others. Table fellowship builds community. It's no coincidence that Jesus invites us to come and gather around his table. To do that regularly. Table fellowship is a great way to live out and share the gospel. Our table fellowship speaks volumes. And then Jesus introduces us to what I would consider to be a rather interesting principle. He says that those who are engaged in the harvest should be supported by those who benefit from it, from those who are harvested. Now, for most of us, that's a significant paradigm shift. But we tend to look at life from our Western culture, and Jesus is explaining this through Eastern eyes. You see, generosity has always been a mark of the church and the followers of Jesus. And out of that generosity, the church, capital C, has often provided free meals and medical care and home repairs and car maintenance and rent assistance and clothing and food and basic necessities, furniture, you name it. Sometimes these ministries and this generosity and graciousness has drained the church financially dry. And that often is responded to by, God, I don't understand. You said you would provide the resources so that we could accomplish the mission that you've entrusted to us. What's the deal? The fact is, if you're giving, if you're generous, there will always be people in need. 
Jesus said. And some of those people will always be eager to receive whatever you have to offer. And they'll take it, whether they need it or not. The truth is, it wasn't very long, even in the early church, when they attracted what I would call spongers. By 100 AD, there were all also a group of people, so-called prophets, that were going around taking advantage of believers' generosity and hospitality by staying for long periods, sometimes years and even decades, without doing anything, just mooching off the generosity of followers of Jesus. The truth is, if we keep giving, people will keep taking. But what Jesus does here is he links our giving to the harvest. You see, the church, big C again, shares and gives billions and billions of dollars to people who need assistance every single year. The sad part is, the harvest is still mostly in the fields. Please hear this. It is not the church's task to meet all the needs and all the wants of people in the world. It is the church's task to bring in the harvest. So our giving, our generosity needs to be connected to the harvest. In these verses, Jesus permanently links our benevolence, our generosity, our graciousness, our giving, our even sacrificial giving to the harvest. If you and your message are welcomed and your peace is received, Jesus says, bless them, offer your hospitality. If your relationship and your giving is pushed away or just used, if it isn't bringing them closer to Jesus, then it's time to reevaluate, maybe even time to move on. Never forget the transforming power of your generosity. Never forget the impact of your hospitality, of simple things like having a meal together. Jesus never did. Open your home. Open your heart. Host friends, neighbors, those who will allow you to share the gospel with them. Keep the focus of your hospitality and your generosity on Jesus. Promote his kingdom so we can bring in the harvest. There is no place for same old people in the kingdom. We have a mission. We have a hope. We bring peace. And then Jesus adds, we bring healing. Jesus says, bless people by healing the sick. Literally, by providing them with a taste of heaven. Should we all take training now in faith healing? Should we all learn how to pray healing prayer? Should we limit evangelism to those who have the gift of healing? I mean, that would get me off the hook. And I say that recognizing how easy it was for me to find a way to get off the hook. But the sick Jesus is referring to here is less a reference to those who are physically 
ailing, to those who have a physical sickness, than it is a reference to the poor in general. You see, sick for the Hebrews was an all-encompassing word that included widows, the blind, the lame, those who were chronically ill. It included all of those who had been ostracized from normal society. Those who were sick were not allowed in the temple or in the fellowship to worship. Those who were sick were considered to be unclean. People were advised to avoid those people who were sick, so to avoid the lame and the blind. And even those people were compelled to sit at the city gates in order to beg for their own assistance. By contrast, Jesus wants his community and the harvest to include those who are sick and those who are not. To include all who are welcomed and invited. All to be embraced in the community of Jesus. Being loved, being embraced, belonging brings healing Healing, which comes from sharing and telling and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, is an essential element in the mission, in transforming our communities, in bringing in the harvest. In Luke 4, Jesus tells his disciples that the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to the sick. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery for sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of the Lord's blessing. It is the church's task. It is our mission to care for the poor and the sick. Not just for those sick who have ailments, physical ailments, but to embrace all of those who the world ostracizes and pushes away. And thereby we bring in the harvest. And thereby we fulfill the mission for which Jesus came. The mission that he is sending us out to accomplish. And then we bring hope. Verse 9. When tomorrow holds little or no promise of being any different than it was today, just the same old, same old thing. People become desperate for a word of hope. And Jesus provides it. Jesus says, tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. This phrase repeated in the 11th verse is good news. It is the proclamation that makes all the difference. This is in the announcement of God's kingdom. It has come. And it's more than an announcement that God's kingdom is something that is available to us in the future. This is the proclamation that God's kingdom is available to us here and now today. You see, the kingdom has come and is coming. The kingdom of God is where God is acknowledged as sovereign. The kingdom of God is where Jesus is acknowledged as resurrected and Lord of life. The kingdom of God is where believers are absolutely convinced that we are going to be spending eternity together with him. That brings hope. Tomorrow is a better day. Our hope is imperishable. 
Our hope has been tested and proved sound. Our hope is guaranteed in Jesus. And our hope leads to an eternal joy. There is nothing samo or ordinary about the hope that you and I have and can have in Jesus Christ. This hope, God's kingdom, is currently available to every single person to accept or to reject. The message of hope needs to be proclaimed. Whether it's welcome, Jesus says, or whether it's resisted, whether it's embraced or whether it's pushed aside. Even people who seem on the surface to be uninterested and unreceptive and opposed to the gospel should be told the story of hope. Why? Because the message is so powerful that it can change and transform lives. And then finally, verses 10, 11, and 12. See, after these wonderful words of invitation and encouragement to go out and bless one another, Jesus concludes his word to the 72 with a word of warning. His warning, it is a terrible thing, he says, to reject God's invitation to be a part of his kingdom. Sometimes our great strengths can also become our greatest weaknesses. And sometimes the promises of God can be both our greatest gift and our sternest warning. If we accept the promises of God, they will bring peace. They will bring hospitality. They will bring hope. They will bring healing. They will bring us into a community and into fellowship with God himself. On the other hand, if we reject those promises of God, Someday, they will also be a judgment against us. By rejecting Jesus, we immediately place ourselves in opposition to him. Jesus told his disciples, don't just take that opposition in stride. Actively come against it and condemn it. Now, at first glance, that condemnation may seem harsh, Jesus writes, when you enter a town and are not welcome, go out into the streets and proclaim. Say out loud as best you can. Even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this. The kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So Jesus here seems to invite a public display of our rejection of their rejection. You reject Jesus, we need to tell people Jesus will be rejecting them. Rejecting Jesus is not a decision to be taken lightly. It will be more bearable for the people of Sodom on the day of judgment than for them. The destruction of Sodom in Genesis 19 is the picture of God's judgment for those who do not accept and believe in his son, Jesus. The towns the disciples will be going to have had far more opportunities to hear about the good news than Sodom ever had. And yet, when they were invited to come, they intentionally rejected the Lord of life. Jesus says, while you will not be judged for what you could not do, you will certainly be judged 
for that which you could have done and did not. So before we finish, I just want to ask a couple of questions. Do the people on your street know that you are a Christian? If you were the only Christian your neighbor ever met, would they know about the peace and the hospitality and the healing and the hope that Jesus offers? Are you blessing your neighbors? Are you making a difference? And together, are we blessing the neighborhood in which God has placed Georgetown Church? Are we offering peace and hospitality and healing and hope to people who are living samo, lusterless lives? Are we changing people's lives? Are we impacting their eternal destiny? Let's pray together. Father, we know the mission. It's not the first time we've heard about it. Father, we confess that it hasn't always been our top priority, that we haven't always kept it the main thing, that we've been distracted. Truth is, Lord, on some occasions we've been downright discouraged. And yet your call is pretty clear. So once again, Lord, renew us. Once again, energize us. Once again, equip us. Once again, empower us by your spirit. Once again, Lord, send us. Use us to make a difference as the workers in your field to bring in your harvest. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.